Abai. I've just been lingering in this, in this presence. And it is amazing when you're in that place how clearly he speaks to us. And I, I just want to encourage us that if you are praying and waiting for a miracle to come through, you're praying for an answer to keep praying. Because what God has started, God will complete. Okay, he will honor his word. So I just felt I needed to share that with you. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, so um, it's kind of hard to preach a message after having God's presence so uh, tangibly at <laughs> worship. Um, but I hope that the message itself will be like inspiring of worship, that there would be something in your heart that as I'm speaking, there would, it would just continually rise up into your heart in, in worship. And, um, so the topic I felt to stand still on today is uh, so we just consider a little bit God's love for us as believers. I'm saying that in a very specific way, God's love for us as believers. It's different. Um, his love for us is different for just the love that he has for the general world. So I'm sure you all just know intuitively John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And, and there is some amazing summary of the gospel captured in that, but it's, it's this thing that this God loves the world that is sometimes not fully understood as to that it's actually God's love has nuances. It's got facets to it. It's different, his love for the world, than his love for his own, his, the believers. Um, now, this love that God has for the world is unconditional. We can see that. It's for the world. It's for everybody. Um, it's indiscriminate. It's all-encompassing. It's available to all people, regardless of their background, ethnicity, social status. It's part of what we call God's common grace. It's just available to all people. It's the same thing of God makes it rain over the godly and the ungodly. It's not discriminate. It's not um, more for one person than another person, this kind of love that God has for the world. But there is one element to this love, or there are a couple of elements, but one thing that is very markedly different in this love that he has for the world than for believers is that this is temporary. He only loves the world while we are in this earth. If you die without Christ, you will eternally be separated from his love. His love is only at play in the world for, for unbelievers, everybody, while they are in this world. So it's temporary. And then there's another aspect to it, which is that this, the intensity of his love is different for the unbeliever than for the believer. And I'll try to make that point um, clear as I go through, but let's just first go to 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. It's a fascinating passage. It, um, it's uh, almost like one of those things where you, it, you have to stand still a bit and like, try to figure out because there's a paradox captured in there. It says, and for this reason we labor, um, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. So how can God be the Savior of all people, but especially of those that believe? Like, what does that really even mean? So I can definitely tell you it's not preaching universalism. It's not saying everybody is saved. The Bible is pretty clear on that point. There is a there are people that are saved, and there are people that are eternally not saved. So it's not teaching universalism. So in what sense is he then the savior of all people? 
Now, I'm sure there are many ways that you can, can approach this, but one way is to say that he's the savior of all people in the sense that he temporarily withholds from the sinner what the sinner deserves when the sinner deserves it. I'm going to say that again. Um, he's the savior of all people in the sense that he temporarily withholds the judgment, the punishment that the sinner deserves when the sinner deserves it. The sinner deserves, the moment someone sins against the Holy God, they deserve to be immediately cast down, striked, struck dead. They're no longer there. Um, if you look at what the, uh, what the devil and um, all his angels did in heaven, they sinned against God, they were immediately cast out. No redemption, no salvation. They're eternally not, no longer with God. That's what the sinner deserves. So in the sense that God has grace on the sinner to allow them a, a period of time to actually repent and turn to him is a form of salvation for them to, to ultimately, hopefully, be saved. So there is, there is this, this thing, if I can talk, take a step back again to God's love. God's love for the world is unlimited in extent. It reaches to everybody. It's unlimited in its extent, but it is limited in its degree, intensity, and duration. It is only for this time on earth. Now, how does God's love look for the believer? And if you go to Psalm 103, verse 11, we can look at many passages, but this, this one, I think, sums it up quite nicely. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so as, as high as the domain of God is above the domain of humans, like that's infinitely high, as high as, as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Steadfast love, it's enduring love, it will not fail, it will always continue. But you see, it's only to those who fear him. There is a condition attached to this kind of love. It's not the same as for God so loved the world. That is a love that's applicable to everyone. This love, which is as high as the heavens above the earth, and steadfast, is only applicable to those that fear him. There is a condition to this kind of special love. So, as I was saying, God's love for the world is unlimited in extent. It goes to everyone. It's limited in degree, intensity, and duration. God's love for the believer is limited in extent. It's only for believers, but it's unlimited in degree, intensity, and duration. It will last beyond death. It goes on to eternity. It, there is no limits to God's love. You, you wouldn't withhold something from you. It's, it's like giving his entire heart to you. That is God's love for the believer. So today we will kind of stand still a little bit and uh, look at the special love that God has for believers. And, and I'm going to primarily lean on two passages. The one is in Romans 5. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there. And then uh, Ephesians 3. And then I'll just share a, a little bit of my own story. Um, but to start, let's go to Romans 5. I'm first going to read through it all. Uh, maybe leave your comments here and there. And then um, we're going to spend quite a lot of time on verse 5. Verse 5 is kind of the... the key verse for today. Okay, so Romans 5 verse 1, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, we are now brought into salvation through our faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's going to stand still there for a second. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There is this understanding that when Jesus returns, the fullness of his glory will come and we will be partakers of that glory. So there's a hope for the, this glory and we rejoice in this hope for this glory. But then he immediately goes on and says, not only that, not only do we rejoice in this hope that we will be glorified with him, we also rejoice in our suffering. 
And uh, just quick, looking forward to Romans 8, a few chapters on, Paul says that if you suffer with Christ or suffer in his name, you will also be glorified with him. So there is this idea of um, suffering and, and glorification always going together. But, so he says we, we put our, rejoice in our hope of the glory of God, but, then, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Why do we rejoice in suffering? It doesn't come naturally. It's not a human inclination to rejoice in suffering, in case you didn't know that. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So as we suffer, we learn how to endure. We actually grow up into maturity. As we grow up into maturity, being more capable to uh, like stand on our faith in difficult circumstances, being useful to God, we come up as people with character. And if you're not a person of character, you limit the usefulness that you have in God's hand. God mostly uses people that have strong character that he can rely on, that he, he knows if he gives them a word, they would follow through on it. If, if he speaks a strong word like, um, I desire obedience, not sacrifice, that is the thing that's what a person of character does, is they desire to obey the one that they love. It's not just something of, I'm doing the things to look right. That is what character produces. And then it says, character produces hope. And then verse 5, and this is the verse we'll spend a lot of time on. I'm just going to read through it quickly now. And this hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. But, but you see the, that verse 9 and 10. In verse 9 it says that you, now that you've been justified, now that you've actually been brought into salvation, how much more will you now be, continue to be saved all the way through like, uh, from the wrath of God? And then he also says, now that you've been reconciled, how much more now that you've been reconciled will you now be saved by his life? So there's, there's something that brings you in. There's a grace of God, a love of God, a work of God that brings you into salvation. But then once you're there, it's like so much more is it going to now reveal to you and still work in your life. So it, it just keeps growing. It's not like, oh, we've now arrived and we've reached the maximum of what there is. It, there's so much more that he still wants to do. But as I was saying, we're going to stand still quite a bit at, at verse 5, and I'm going to first focus on the second half of verse 5. So it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now I want to emphasize that. God's love poured into our hearts. God's love poured into our hearts is a vastly different thing from God's love proven to the mind. He's going to say that again. God's love poured into your heart is not the same thing as God's love proven to your mind. God's love poured into your heart is a real experience. There is there's a knowing in your heart. There is this just fullness in your heart aspect that you know. You feel it or it's nothing. That is God's love poured into your heart. It's not, uh, um, this experience is not the conclusion of an argument where you, you stack up all the facts and you come to the conclusion, it's like, okay, yes, God loves me. Like, that's important. I'm not saying dismiss that, but that is not what this verse is talking about. So let me just give you two examples of how you could conclude from an argument that God loves you. So as I was starting, for God so loved the world, then you might say, well, I'm part of the world, therefore God loves me. 
So you concluded from an argument that God loves you, and you're right. Um, another one, if you're now saved, if you, if you go to John 15, verse 13, it says, um, Christ taught his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then he expands on saying that um, if you follow me and keep my commandments, then I call you my friend. So there is a conditional to that friendship, but regardless, then you might argue, well, I'm one of his friends because I follow him and keep his commandments. Therefore, this love of God, that there's no greater love than this, also applies to me. That's also, again, concluding from an argument that God loves you. And that's helpful, but that's not what Romans 5 verse 5 is talking about. It's not deducing from an argument, these are the facts, therefore I am loved. It is, that, that is sort of merely an idea to, or, um, or a conclusion. But um, this outpouring of love into our hearts is an experience that we have. You feel it in your heart, or it's nothing. Okay, now what is the role or function of this experience? If we go again to verse 5, Romans 5, verse 5, it says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. You, you see the word because is the reason why we get this thing. So why do we get this thing? So that um, our hope would not be put to shame. And the reason that Paul gives why our hope will not be put to shame, maybe to our surprise, is an experience. He's not saying... Your hope will not be put to shame because you can logically argue that Christ died for you and therefore loves you. That is not what he's saying. He says, your hope will not be put to shame because you have an experience. Now, I want to emphasize we need more than just an experience. But less is not Christianity. Okay, so in, in what way can our hope be put to shame? I think it's, it's helpful to just quickly stand still and, and consider that. So there are two, two main ways that I can come up with in which your hope can potentially be put to shame. The first one is that the object of your hope is incorrect. In other words, that you claim that your hope is in God, but in reality, your hope is in other things. It's in wealth, it's in comfort, it's in the fact that people would love, like you and want to spend time with you. Your hope is actually in that, and it's not in God, and therefore, if, the, it, if it would be exposed that your hope is actually in other things, while you claim it's in God, if, that, if the truth comes to light, then obviously you would stand somewhat ashamed, like you, you claimed something which wasn't, wasn't the reality, so your hope could be put to shame in that way. Another way that your hope can be put to shame is that the object of your hope is false. It's fake. It's not real. So you, you say, I hope that God loves me, but actually he doesn't love you. That would obviously be terrible. Or you say, I hope that God exists, but he actually doesn't exist. That would obviously be horrible. So if we put our hope in the wrong thing, in, in something that is not real, then at the end of the day, after millions of years, people would look back at these Christians and say, oh, those foolish people, they put their hope in this God who they thought would return, but he never, never did. So they, in that situation, our hope would also be put to shame. Now, Paul addresses both of these. The first one, he actually says, God has a way of dealing with this hope in the wrong thing, in, in comfort, in prosperity, in, in all of these things. And the verses leading up to this passage kind of explains how God does this. He says, through the fires of suffering... He will wean you off of, the, off of you putting hope in other things. <laughs> so it's, it's like if you go through the trial and you get to the other side of the trial and you say, my hope is still in God, my faith is still in God, it has remained. I am therefore really putting my hope in God and not in other things. That's, that's how God reveals your heart to you is it puts you in suffering. Because we don't know that we put our hope in other things until we are suffering. And then we realize, oh, shucks, my hope is not actually really in God. It's in other things. So this, this is a phrase that I, I heard from someone. It's really, 
really uh, struck me. It says, suffering is a gift from God to burn up false hope. So I'm going to say that again. Suffering is a gift to burn up false hope. Or in other words, hope that you put in the wrong things. Suffering reveals that. It deals with that. So actually what Paul is saying in this is like, your hope will not be put to shame because God has already dealt with that aspect. But now the other one still remains. Like, and it's a little bit uh, more nuanced, more tricky to deal with this one. How do we know that the object of our hope is real, that it's true, that God really does love us, that he really exists? How do we know this? And uh, um, Paul gives the answer in um, verse 5b where he says that this hope, this, he says this wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be disappointed, your hope will not fail, you would not be put to shame. And, and then he gives the reason, he gives the foundation for why we know that the object of our hope is correct. And to our amazement again, it's an experience. That is the way that he proves, God proves to us that he is real, is he gives us an experience. That is what this verse is talking about. So I'm just going to read it again. Because, uh, I'm sorry, uh, where is it now? Verse 5. I've lost my place here. So, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, we would often still want to lean, uh, when we try to validate our hope that we have in something, we'd still often want to lean on facts and historical reasons and archaeology and all of those things. And those things are important. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you could come to Equip for Life. We really go through, through those uh, foundations thoroughly um, to allow you to board up an argument in your head that all of these things are real. But that's not what verse, uh, Romans 5 verse 5 is talking about. He's not saying for the Christian, your confidence is not in facts. Your confidence is in this experience. Now, I'll get to the, the importance of the facts just now, but um, that is the first point I need to get clear. Just having facts all together in your head is not Christianity. So why do we need facts? One of the reasons is, uh, according to 1 Peter 3 verse 15, it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So again, that word, the hope that is in you. Someone is going to ask you for a reason for it. For you, your confidence is in you knowing God, you knowing this experience in your heart that He loves you and that He exists. You know Him. That is your confidence. But if someone comes to ask you for a reason, that will not be convincing to them. What you need to do is you need to give them some reasons. You need to draw them closer. You need to lay a foundation um, for the reasonableness of faith, for someone's heart to start to soften up to the truths so that the Holy Spirit can, can move in there. Okay, now I want to look at four aspects of this experience that I've been talking about. And uh, um, yeah, that's, that's the bulk of what I still have left to go through. Um, okay, so the first one is that this experience of the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit. So if we can say anything about this experience, this is the most important part of it. It is done by the Holy Spirit. It is not a decisive work of man. It is a decisive work by God. You don't make this happen. God makes this happen. It's supernatural. I can't make you feel God's love. Nobody can. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that does this, God's work in you. So only the Holy Spirit can pour God's love into your heart. And I want to emphasize nothing discredits or disqualifies you from being selected by the Holy Spirit for God's love to be poured into your heart. No amount of past sin or um, history or family background or whether your parents modeled God's love for you well or not, that does not affect this experience of God's love that the Holy Spirit can pour into your heart. 
So pursue it, seek it. That, that is, that's part of the inheritance of a Christian. The second one is this um, experience of God's love has factual objective content. That's what I was um, saying just now, um, is that the Holy Spirit has this way of, through historical facts, revealing God's love to us. And, and we, we actually see that there's this knowledge component, and this knowledge component actually has facts behind it. Um, but it doesn't help, so just to make a point, it doesn't help if I just say believe or trust. If I just say a word, it doesn't mean anything. You don't know what to believe and you don't know where to put your trust into, who to trust in. So just an experience or without having any facts to put your trust in is obviously not helpful. So we need to have the foundation of historical facts. And you see this is the same way that Paul builds the argument. So he says this experience that the Holy Spirit gives is essential. But then immediately verse 6 he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So he immediately carries this thought forward. Um, and then verse 7, he talks about uh, um, scarcely will someone die for a righteous person, etc. And then he says, but in verse 8, but God shows, present tense, he continues to show. He showed it once and he's still showing it to us now today, every day of our lives. God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He points to the historical reality of Christ dying for us as the foundation for why we know that God loves us with our head. This is the, um, this is the aspect that he's emphasizing in verse 8. So, so you might then ask, what is it then? Like, uh, um, is it that God shows his love to us through this historical experience of Christ's death? Or is it that the Holy Spirit pours this experience into our hearts, this, this experience of God's love into our hearts? Which one is it now? And I don't think Paul lets us choose. These things can't be broken apart. They are a both-and thing. It's, uh, there is an experience in the heart. But there is also love that is demonstrated in history. There is fact, there is feeling, there is knowledge in the head, which is important, and there is affections of the heart. There is spirit and there is truth. Both of them together is the fullness of the love of God that is shown to us. So this experience that's given to us by the Holy Spirit, um, it, it, that's poured into us, God's love poured into our hearts, is given to us by first opening our minds, revealing the truth of the gospel to us, and then he opens the eyes of our heart to see the ravishing beauty of God's love displayed in the death of Jesus on the cross. So it's both. Our mind opens up, spirit enters in, pours his love into our hearts. So with that, I want to emphasize again that it, this experience is not some vague, when it comes to you, it's not some vague new age out-of-body experience where you're in some hypnotic state when you clear your mind going through meditation or something and then it just comes to you. It has factual basis. It's got factual content. It's when you actively think about the work of Jesus that the love of God comes and pours into your heart. Okay, so the third point is this experience, this is experienced by all Christians in some measure. So this experience in your heart of God's love being poured in your heart is not just that that belongs to the emotional types among us. Like, if anyone knows me, I'm not an emotional type. <laughs> so, the, this experience is to be universal for all Christians. So, why do I say that? And I'm, I'm again getting this directly from verse 5. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, he says, poured into our hearts, given to us. It's the same group of people that he's talking about. So, in other words, I can say that the same group of people who has received the Holy Spirit, who, to whom the Holy Spirit has been given, is the same group of people to whom the Holy Spirit will pour God's love into their hearts. Okay, so then the question is, to whom was the Holy Spirit given? 
Romans 8 verse 9 says, um, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You know, just quickly, it's talking about Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ in one verse. It's all the same Holy Spirit. There is only one Holy Spirit. It's just different uh, ways of referring to it. But the second part says, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So in other words, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. Otherwise, you do not belong to him, and then you're not really a Christian. So, in conclusion, since all Christians have the Holy Spirit... Therefore, all Christians know experientially something of the love of God. They've at least tasted something of the love of God. It might not have been as overwhelming experience necessarily, but you've at least tasted the outpouring of God's love into our hearts. Every true Christian knows the love of God, not just as an argument, but as an experience as well. That is actually what it means to be a true Christian. Now, immediately I need to say that this experience varies from time to time, from person to person, and it can be and should be pursued to ever fuller measure. That's my fourth point. I'm going to repeat it again. This experience varies from time to time. It fluctuates. And it's different from person to person. I might not experience it the same way that Naku does or the way that uh, Yandre does. Um, now, it might be that up to this point, there, there is hopefully a, a tiny percentage of, of you here today that have absolutely no idea, you've got no reference for this experience that I'm talking about. I want to argue from the verses I just read, you're not saved. Then there are some of you that, like, as I'm talking about the love of God, you're just like, yes, this is so sweet, this is so precious, this is the most fulfilling experience in my heart that I can, I just want to jump out of my chair and shout, it's like, Jesus loves me, type of thing. And then there are some of you, or the rest of you are in between there somewhere. And I think that's where most of us sit. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's fine. I'm like... I, Today, as I'm talking, it might be that God's love to you is very sweet suddenly. And then tomorrow when you get to work, it's like you might feel very blank. It might feel very numb. You don't really know where is God's love. What happened now? Where, where, did, it, where did I lose it? And uh, then you start saying, oh, well, did I sin now or did something happen or whatever? And it's like this is just the Christian experience. Like It varies from time to time. There might be long seasons where you're just fully aware of it and then long seasons where you're not as fully aware of it. So when I'm describing this experience, I'm not, saying, I'm not talking about some idealistic Christian perfectionism where you're just always walking on a cloud, having the full intensity of God's love in your heart. That's not what I'm talking about. There is, there is fluctuations in it, and that's, that's just the way it, it works. Now I want to point something out in verse 5. Like We're still standing still at verse 5. And this is a, unfortunately not something that can be translated to English. I don't know. I wanted to ask Isaac about this. I don't see him now. But... Uh, um, in, in the Greek, there are many more tenses. So at some point, I was studying a bit of Greek, and I at some point gave up. It just got too, too complicated with all the tenses and all the masculine, feminine, neutral, and everything. it's just too much. But the point is, there are many more tenses in Greek, so you can express a lot more nuance in Greek than you can in English. Um, and in this verse, there are actually two tenses that's used, but it's translated in the same way in, in English. So the, the tense that's used for ha the Holy Spirit has, has been, or the love of God has been poured out into our hearts, that has been poured, and the Holy Spirit has been given to us. In English, it's just both has been. In Greek, it's actually two separate tenses. The one talking about the Holy Spirit is a, a once-for-all type of tense. It's like it happened once, you've got the Holy Spirit. That's the way the tense that's used. The, the one that's talking about the, his love poured into our hearts is a continuous thing that repeats itself again and again. So 
Paul is not implying that, oh, the love of God is poured into your heart once and then it's done. It's a continuous pouring into your heart that goes on through life. But since it's not so obvious in English, I'm going to go to another verse in Second Thessalonians 3 verse 5 to try to make the same point. It says, um, May the Lord direct your heart into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, I just want to start by saying that your heart can be directed. Like, in case you don't know that, you can direct your heart at situations. You can direct it towards money. You can direct it towards sex. You can direct it towards fear or anger or um, anything that grabs your attention, that thing that to you is deemed valuable, the thing that your heart cherishes, that it wants to run after, the thing that you believe will make your heart glad, that is the thing that your heart is directed towards. And you can choose to direct your heart to, I am loved. God has sent his son to die on the cross for me. Therefore, he has demonstrated his love. You can direct your heart into the love of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, the fact that Paul even prays for this means that it's obviously not continuously experienced. Like if you don't need to pray for, I don't need to pray for um, Jesus, please uh, die on the cross so that my sins can be forgiven. That's, he's already done that. Like that's, that's sorted. Um, what I can pray for is, Lord, direct my heart into the love of God. Let it grow. Let this awareness of your love for me grow. Let it, however great or small it might be, let it be greater. So if you today feel very cold, you feel like, okay, I'm, I, I've experienced this somewhere in the past, but it's, like, it's really numb right now. This is your prayer. Lord, please direct my heart into your love. Let my heart strive in that direction. Let me see it again as all-satisfying and most valuable, that that is the thing I desire. And then kind of to wrap everything up I've been talking about, there's a nice passage in Ephesians 3, which just kind of says everything I've been saying in one package. Um, but I, I feel like hopefully you can understand the, or appreciate the fullness of Ephesians 3 a bit more after what I've been talking about. So Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21 going to first read it in the ESV and then explain through it a little bit and then uh, in the New Living Translation. So again, this is now Paul praying for the Ephesians. And obviously when Paul is going to be praying for a church, he's going to pray for the thing that is most important for them. Um, it's, he's not going to just pray frivolous things. He's going to seek for the depth that they need in that church. So he says, for this reason, I bow my knee, knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. So God, he acknowledges God has the full capacity and wealth to pour what I'm going to ask him out upon you. So it's not like God is not able to do this thing. He's acknowledging God has got the fullness and the riches of his glory at his disposal to pour out this request on his people. And he says, that he, um, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So there we see that the strengthening is done through the Holy Spirit in our inner being, so that uh, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. That is what the Spirit works in us. We become rooted and grounded in love. And I want to emphasize this is God's love for you. This is what it's talking about, is that you're rooted and grounded in God's love for you. Um, this is your foundation. This is what you build your life on. This is, you, you root yourself in this position that God loves me. And, and it's, again, it's a heart thing. And then he exp explains this a little bit further. He says, verse 18, um, that you may, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So, so kind of appreciate or understand this with all the saints. Again, not just for a select few, 
This is the inheritance of all the saints. What is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth? And to know the love of Christ. This, this uh, again, the word know is, is talking about an experiential knowing. It's like an intimate, deep knowing. It's not just a know with my head. And it becomes clear because it says that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So clearly the knowing and the knowledge is two different things. It surpasses knowledge. It's not something that's just understood with your brain and your mind by some argument. It is a known in your heart, a deep experiential knowing. That's the love of Christ for you that he wants you to know. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, I mean, like, that's, that's just amazing. Like, the fullness of God. Imagine what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. One of the things is obviously God is love. And if God comes in his fullness, that is what you know in your heart is his love. And then he goes on, and this is now, like, he's already just prayed one of the most insane prayers ever, like, that you would be filled with the fullness of God. And then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Like, that is incredibly insane how much he, like, Paul thinks that God wants to pour out his love. He's able to do this. I'm asking the greatest prayer for God's love to pour to your heart that I can imagine. But he's able to do far more abundantly than I can even ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to read this passage again in the New Living Translation and let it just kind of wash over you. Like, I'm not going to expand too much on it, just let it wash over you. So, when I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. Then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So to summarize what we looked at today, I started by talking about this hope that we have that will not be put to shame. This hope in God's love, the hope in his reality that will not be put to shame, and that God does this. He says, don't worry, I've proven this to you. I will pour out this heart-knowing experience of my love into your heart. And by, through that, he, he ensures that you will not be put to shame. And to the end, uh, I'm sorry, and by doing this, he gives you an authentic experience of his love, not just an argument for his love, but an experience. That is, that is the point I'm trying to get across. And he tells us four things about this experience. The first one is that it's, it's poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It is, it's not our doing. It's not something that we have to work for or strive for. It's something that you can direct your heart into and pursue. But it's, it's something that's an absolute work of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. Then the second thing is that this experience is given by the Holy Spirit. Um, it has factual content. He, he opens our mind and then the eyes of our hearts to see the... the um, historical death of Jesus as the, the thing that God used to demonstrate and show us his love. And it's, it's again, it's, it's, it shows his love in a present tense continuously to us through the, the fact that Jesus died. 
The third one is this. This experience comes to every Christian in some measure. There is no Christian who merely believes by argument and not by experience. This is what it means to be born again. Like there's a new, new life that has risen up inside of you. You have tasted and seen the glory of God in Christ crucified. And then the last one is that this experience can vary from time to time and person to person, and it can be and should be pursued in ever fuller measure. So therefore, may the Lord direct your hearts into the experience of, of the love of God, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to experientially know the love of Christ for you that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, yeah, I said I'm going to share a little bit briefly about just my story, like really shortly, um, but the music team can maybe start coming up and playing softly in the background. Um, yeah, so f when I was in grade 11, I had a deep encounter with God. Like there was, a, his love was poured into my heart. It was like there was no question anymore that he loved me. And then I went through various cycles. I, I um, started leading a lot more in my understanding. I, I actually argumented with a lot of atheists, and many of their arguments started to convince me in some way. And I, I actually, for a time, I would have considered myself an atheist as well. And then still, God's love found me again and pulled me closer. And then there were these cycles in my life where I would know his love deeply, and then I would not know his love as, as tangibly. And um, actually, for the, for the last while, it hasn't been so much experiential, maybe partly because I didn't pursue it as much, but on the... On, on a big level, it was like, okay, great, I understand God's love, and I appreciate it, and I worship Him for it, but it wasn't really known in my heart for, for let's say, the last year or so. And uh, then Um Yuck uh, lent me a book by Jackie Pullinger, um, it's called Chasing the Dragon, and one of the things that really struck me in this book is she tells about her story of how she was so compelled by the love of God that she experientially known for herself that she couldn't help but go to the poorest of the poor in Hong Kong amongst all the drug addicts and just pour her life out to those people despite having no support financially from anyone. Her, the love of God compelled her to that extent. And I was just uh, reading that and I'm thinking, I don't really have that compoundness of God's love. I don't know it's so experiential that it would actually drive me to do anything different in my life. And then I realized, okay, actually there's a bit of a problem. And in the same time, I, I came across an album by uh, Jeremy Riddle and one of the songs, he has this phrase, it's like, uh, I long to know the depths of your love that always leaves me time and time again undone. And I'm like, I, I don't remember when was the last time that I was left undone by the love of God. And I think that might be the case for many of us. So, so then I, I, I kind of went to God and I'm like, okay, well, there's a problem here. Like, I don't really experientially know your love. Like the Bible talks about this as I was now sharing with you. So where do I get this? <laughs> I can't make this happen. You have to do this. So then he asked me a question. He took me through an interesting thought process. And uh, yeah, I'm just sharing it with you. I'm not implying that this exact thought process would lead you to also know it, but I, I trust that something of it, of God's love would be revealed in it. So he asked me this question. He's like, Karin, so what is the most valuable thing for you in your entire life? And initially I thought he was like, okay, he's trying to get at the fact that I'm not um, putting my love and attention on other things, but that's not really what he was doing. He was just trying to get me to answer honestly, what is the thing that I consider most valuable? And uh, for everyone of the, us, that would be a different thing. And for some of you, it might be your cell phone. For some of you, it might be a car or a house or some very precious sentimental object you inherited from your grandmother or something. It, whatever it might be, think of the most valuable thing in all of your possession. And then he said, Let's say there is someone in need of that object, 
And uh, if you don't give that object to them, their life would be dramatically worse. Would you be willing to give that thing to them? And I'm like, okay, well, God, like, obviously it would be a bit of an emotional turmoil to get myself to the point of saying it's okay, like, maybe I, I love them enough, like, you tell me to be self-sacrificing, whatever, it's like, okay, I can maybe give it to them. And then, then he turned the thing around and he's like, okay, but Renzo, do you, do you know what is the most valuable thing to me in all of, my, all of existence? And he immediately answered, it's like, it's my son, Jesus. He is the most valuable, most precious, the thing I love the most beyond compared to anything else. He is the one I love so much that all my attention and focus almost would be on him. And do you realize that you had a problem that you had no way of solving? The only solution that existed for you was that I would lose my son. I would sacrifice him so that him being entirely an innocent man living the way that I actually expect you to live can then take your punishment upon him. That was what was required for you to be able to come in and be reconciled. Your life would have been dramatically worse if it wasn't for me giving my son. But because I loved you so much, I gave my son so that he can be the salvation for you. And somehow that just broke me. Like <laughs> Realizing how valuable Jesus was to the Father. It's not just like, oh, he sent my son and cool, he died and he's like rising again. There is a sacrifice that God made. Like this, this depth of this emotional turmoil that God had to go through to come to the point where it's like, I am now going to send Jesus. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. Jesus standing the night before his crucifixion, coming to his father and saying, please, daddy, I don't want to go through this. Like, is there any way that we can get, get another solution to this problem? And the father just said, there is no other solution. This is the solution. That is the love that he showed to us. And that is the love that he wants to pour into our hearts that knowing that he loves us in our hearts it's not just head knowledge i just expressed head knowledge to you but he wants to pour all his love into our hearts make it tangibly real to us that it structures our life drives us compels us to do things that we would not naturally do because his love is the overpowering force moving us forward now as i was saying there might be some of you who has no idea what i'm talking about like this experience is entirely foreign to you and as I'm saying, if I just go to the Bible, it, it leads me to believe that you're not saved. And that's actually not such bad news because God immediately offers the good news. He says, I did send my son. He did come to die in your place. He now offers salvation for you. If only you would put your trust and your faith in him, he would save you. He would justify you. He would make you right before God. And he would make you his own. And then he will give you the Holy Spirit. And then through the Holy Spirit, He will pour God's love into your heart. So there is that invitation this morning that God says, I am offering you life. I'm offering you fullness of, of my love poured out into your heart. Not just God loves the world, but God loves you. And it, it starts by faith. It starts by putting your faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to call you up or anything like that. Um, at the end, we're going to have a bit of a response time. And if anyone wants to come forward for prayer, just for, for anything, please come forward. Um, but especially you, if you say, I have never made that choice. I've never actually put my faith in Jesus. Please come forward. Let us pray with you. Let us actually lead you to him. Let us bring you into that relationship with him. So yeah, maybe if we can all stand and then just close in prayer.
as Father, there is something so ununderstandable, incomprehensible about your love, Lord. It's, it surpasses all understanding, Lord. It doesn't make sense that you would do this. You would send your son. You would draw us to yourself, Lord. It doesn't make sense. Lord, I pray that we would not let our understanding or our mind get in the way and lean so heavily on that, Lord, that we miss what you want to do in us and through us, Lord. So I pray that for every one of us, Lord, you would again, through your Holy Spirit, pour your love in its fullness into our hearts, Lord, that it would be like a stream of living water overflowing through us, Lord, that it would not know boundaries, Lord. Lord, I pray for that to become again real and tangible to us, Lord. May it drive us, may it compel us, Lord. May we, we constantly direct our hearts into the love of God, Lord. May it not be something that we neglect and say it's, it's just something that, cool, I've ticked the box, but that it would be our primary focus, the thing we value above all other things, Lord. Your love, your love, Lord. And Lord, so I, I just pray for um, you know, the people that are feeling dry, people that don't, don't know this, Lord. I pray that they would be a reviving of their hearts, of their souls, Lord, to, to know and experience something of your love, that, that they would overwhelm them, Lord, in a way that they've not known before, that it, that it would not ever again be something that they have to try to figure out, have I not known the love of God or have I not? Am I saved? Am I not saved? That it would be so, so clear to them, Lord. Pray that you would do this work. In Jesus' name.